This morning, we're in, if you would, the fifth part of a four-part series that Keith has been sharing with us. You got that, didn't you? Thank you. (laughs) Concerning hope incarnate. And so, if you've not been here for those four sermons, let us encourage you to go online and listen. We understand that there are occasions when you cannot come to gather with us on Sunday mornings. There are occasions like that. You may be in the bed and you're tied down and you can't get up. Uh, there may be a blizzard outside and there's 700 inches of snow outside. So there are a couple of things and reasons why you can't come to Sunday morning service. We understand that. Maybe there's a third one, but I can't remember what it is. And so this morning, I just felt again, hopefully being led by the Spirit, that this should be the fifth one. And I've entitled this, I don't like saying that, I feel that the title should be War and Peace. A few weeks ago, you may remember if, unless you're not watching and listening to any news at all, you may remember a great trembling went through the world. A great trembling went through the world at a particular announcement. An announcement that caused some to rejoice, but caused most, at least as expressed by leaders of nations, to tremble and to be fearful, to worry. World peace is in jeopardy. World peace may now be unattainable. An announcement went forth that exploded the idea or the desire, not the desire, the hope for world peace in the hearts of many. Hopefully not in the hearts of those who are in Christ. What was that announcement? Our president said he is going to and has recognized that Jerusalem is now the capital of Israel. Now, just as a caveat to the side, read Zechariah 12 verse 2. Just write it down, read it, and you make a decision on it. A prophecy that is written 400 years before the birth of Jesus. But fear. And many of you remember, do you remember the fear and it's still going on? And riots and demonstrations. And I think it's pretty obvious to say that what the world needs today is to experience peace, both politically and in a personal way. I don't know whether more than any other time, but I think at least we're more aware of it and we're more aware of the need. Peace. We need world peace. We need peace in our own souls. Many of us yearn for peace and find it elusive in our relationships. And especially peace within ourselves, about ourselves. 
how many of us could probably look at our who we are in the natural, how we act in the natural, what our desires and thoughts are in the natural, disassociating ourselves from in Christ and not being, quote, spiritual here, but being realistic as far as our naturalness is concerned. How many of us would say, you know, I am at total peace about everything in my life, about every thought, word, and deed. I am settled. I am peaceful. I am satisfied. I don't think we can. And so there's a huge need of peace politically and peace personally in this world. Perhaps we identify with the statements in Romans chapter 7, where the apostle, partly having said a whole lot about a struggle in him, he says this in Romans seven nineteen, the last part of the verse, the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, don't raise your hands, but how many of us can look at our lives And in too many categories, too many, and just one category is enough, but too many categories, we can say, I am doing things I don't want to do. I find that in me there is a struggle, a battle. Sometimes I win it, but too often I do not. You know, this morning, Eric commented about the men attending the men's retreat. Soon as he said that, a battle goes off. Right, men? Correct, men? What's the battle? First of all, do I really want to go? That's first, do I even want to go? Do I want to make the commitment? Do I want to take my life as a man of God? As a man who has been given responsibility, whether as a single man or a married man, to pursue and to manifest the purposes of God upon the earth, having been purchased at the highest price of the blood of the Lord Jesus, am I willing to lay down personal preferences against going away and spending a little money that weekend? Or will I do what God is calling us as men to do for his purposes and for his glory? There's a battle going on, amen? Some of you are going to win the battle for the purpose of God. And too many are going to lay down the purpose of God at the altar of personal preference and ease oh well I work that weekend fine then go home get on your knees and say to the Lord father open the door of opportunity for me that I may come into your presence that weekend and receive and we understand there will be some who under even the leading of the Holy Spirit will not come. I got that. There's a battle going on. 
It's a battle within us, about us. It is a battle essentially for the will of God as opposed for our own, as to oppose our own will. It is a battle that is going on within us. A battle for the purposes, for the will of God against our own wills. That's the battle, isn't it? Are you with me? Is that the battle this morning for you when you're confronted with whatever it is and the decision has to be made to do or not to do, to go or not to go, to say or not to say, to think or not to think? The battle is for the will of God. Against our own fleshly wills. See, what we need to hear in these kinds of times is the voice of the Lord Jesus to these inner battles. What he said when he was in the boat and he told the disciples, let's get in the boat and we're going to the other side of the lake. It isn't that they didn't know the will of God. They have the will of God in the boat with them. We have the will of God in the word of God and by the spirit. Correct? Everybody have that. And so we know the will of God. And he said, we're going to the other side. And immediately opposition. And Jesus stands up. And he says, peace, be still. And the raging opposition came to an end immediately. Now, there's so much to say about this. Here's the difficulty that any of us who speak have. There are 39,826 things more to say. But we're trying not to do that. Otherwise, we'll be here through all this cold time and be here until next week. Which may be better anyway, right? I think it's going to be better in here than it is out there. You see, we need that peace spoken to us. Listen to what Philippians 4, 7 says. And you may be taking notes on these sheets of paper. Yes, you might be. Philippians 4, 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard or garrison or protect your heart's And your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul is speaking to believers. To those who have received the forgiveness of their sin by believing that Jesus has died for their sin. And have said yes to that for them. This peace of God. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus has come to bring God's kind of peace into our battles. Now, you did notice I said, I did not say God's peace, nor did I say Jesus. I said God's kind of peace because we're not careful to differentiate between God's kind of peace and the peace that we understand as peace. We will miss what real peace is. Peace is not just kind of getting everything okay and moving along and, you know, and kind of making life mellow and nice. That is not what God's kind of peace is. Jesus in John 14, 27, speaking to the disciples the night that he was betrayed, said this, 
peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives. Therefore, don't let your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. My peace. What is this peace? This is the peace that exists within the person of God among the three persons of God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Experience eternal, undiminished, continual peace in their fellowship and in the relationship. It is a peace that God has in himself within the community of the Godhead in which there is absolute unity and harmony, no struggling, no discord, everything absolutely satisfying to each person of the Godhead. It's God's peace, the peace that is in God within himself, about himself. It is the peace of God within himself, about himself. That's the peace that God gives to us in Christ. You see, this is the peace that Jesus came to apply to our hearts and minds. It's God's own inner peace. It is radically different from any other peace that any of us can ever experience. This is the peace that wins the battle, our battle, that battle within ourselves for the will of God. It is this peace that settles the matter. See, this is the peace that will guard our hearts and minds, garrison about against all the assaults of the world, the assaults of our own flesh, our, pers- our perspectives, our preferences, the peace that will gar- garrison us and guard us against over- being overcome by the assaults of Satan. I said being overcome by the assaults. I didn't say it will stop the assaults. This peace is not a peace given so the world can never assault us, so the flesh can never assault us, so sin can never assault us, so Satan can never assault us. It is a peace that overcomes all of that. So that those assaults won't grip our wills and become part of a polluting activity in our souls. See, this is the peace that will motivate and empower us for the will of God against our own will. Let's talk for a few minutes about this peace. Father, thank you so much for doing the greatest work to bringing to us the accomplishment of our greatest need. Jesus, amen. Peace. This is the peace that God has promised in these scriptures. Listen to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. We've read it, and you probably have heard it so often during this season. We're pretty familiar with it. 720 or so years before Jesus was even born, here's what the Lord gave the prophet Isaiah to tell the people. For, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us. And the government will rest upon his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. 
This is a prophecy, you remember, that is fulfilled in Luke chapter 2, so many years later. And now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of all the inhabited world. And this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of Bethlehem. By the way, the word Bethlehem means house of bread. In order to register alone, along with Mary, who was a strain engaged to him, and he, she was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were very frightened. And behold, the angel says, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy. The joy of God in the giving of his son. And this joy shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom God is well pleased. A great announcement, the coming of the one who is peace himself, the Prince of Peace. The fulfillment of the prophecies all the way back from Genesis 3.15, all the way forward. Finally, peace himself is upon the earth. An innocent little baby is born into the world. A sweet, cuddly, loving, loving little baby. And this baby is the one who will bring God's peace. Not only into the world, but will bring God's peace into the lives of those who are his own. And for those who are his own, for those of us who are in Christ, that peace will be applied to us by the Spirit as we walk in obedience and call upon him. He is the bringer of God's peace. No wonder the angels rejoiced. Finally, finally, the world has hope for peace. Finally. You see, with the birth of this little Lord Jesus, we now can have God's kind of peace to reign in our hearts and our minds. But see, the question is, how has this peace been made available to us? What had to happen in order for God to appropriate his own personal peace to us who were rebels and enemies. What had to happen? Well, I believe the answer at least is alluded to in the announcement we just read in Luke 2, 13. Listen to what the word says. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God. The heavenly hosts. 
Now, why was the birth of this divine child heralded by the heavenly host? What is significant about the word host here? Well, it has to do with the way the word host is used in the Old Testament because at this point, obviously, we have no New Testament. And so the word host is used basically to describe or to say something about or mention a large group, a multitude, a whole lot of. And it can have either a non-military emphasis or it can have a military emphasis. One or the other, depending on the context. For instance, listen to Exodus 14, 19, and 20. And you remember what is happening in Exodus chapter 14. And you may have seen the movie, so you'll probably know it better than you did from the word. Sometimes we remember more in film. The Pharaoh has said to Moses, get out, get out, get out. Take you and your people and all that and get out of my face and go away. And so Moses and all the people leave Egypt. Thousands upon hundreds of thousands of people leave Egypt out into the wilderness. And then Pharaoh realizes, what have I done? Uh, We need to bring these folks back or, you know. (laughs) So he changes his mind, you remember? And so Pharaoh begins to pursue the people of God. And as he does, the word says this, then the angel of God who was going before the hosts of Israel. The word host of Israel means that large gathering group of people. But then in the next verse, it says this, and the pillar of cloud, remember the pillar of cloud and fire that stood between Israel and the armies of Pharaoh. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. Well, the host of Israel means we have a whole lot of innocent, helpless people there. But what does it mean when it says the host of Egypt? What does that mean? Everybody in Egypt just kind of got ready and run on down to the, you know, Red Sea to see. What is the host of Egypt? It is the armies of Pharaoh. The armies of Pharaoh. This is a military host. You remember in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Israel is being held in the bondage of fear. Because the Philistines now have a champion. A champion. Nine foot six inch bad breath mean man. Called what? Goliath of Gath. Remember that? The Philistines, the enemies of God have a champion. A military champion. And Saul... And Israel are quaking in their boots. Hamana, 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 hamana. Now, Ray, you should have thought of, listen to me. Hamana, hamana, hamana. Remember that? From, I do those things to keep Ray awake. From the honeymooners. What is Israel to do? We can't, who in the world in here can fight a nine foot six inch man? The, his sword is bigger than we are. He has a javelin. You know, these, this guy's big. And there's a young man, probably around 20 or some odd years old, 
who has come into the camp having been tending his father's sheep, a shepherd boy, and he hears the roar of this Philistine taunting the armies of the God of Israel, taunting them, ridiculing them, creating fear. And this boy picks up five stones and he puts one in his sling. And the Bible says, and David said to this Philistine, you come against me with sword and with spear and with javelin. Satan, you come against me with everything this world can throw. Flesh, you rise up against the purposes of God continually in my mind and in my heart and my desires. Relationships assault. Finances quiver us. Politics. We're living in a dangerous world. Because you see, the God of this world is a Goliath. And David says this. And this is what we need to be remembering to say when we are being assaulted and attacked and tempted. And the reason we give in to temptations, friends in Christ, and especially men in Christ, the reason we give in to temptation is because we do not stand against it in the name of the Lord of hosts. But we surrender. And we give in to our thoughts and our desires and our ease. And we do what the world tells us to do rather than going to God and finding, Father, what glorifies and pleases you. We're so quick to capitulate and say, well, this is okay. It's all right. God will understand. Fully on that. God understands one thing. You didn't come to me. You need to come to me. And David says, I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you defiled. Defy, whom you defy. Years before in Joshua chapter 5, Joshua stands ready as the commander of Israel. Remember, Moses has died. As the commander of Israel, Joshua stands ready to begin to conquer the seven nations of Cana in order to possess and live in the promise of God, having been given to Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis and repeated several times, and finally, they're there to take it over. You see, brethren in Christ, we are now living in the promised land of God. Amen? And there are assaulting enemies against this 
takeover of our flesh, of our bodies and minds and souls from the enemy who does not want to relinquish one iota of this land that he has been occupying and governing for so many years. It is a battle for our wills for the purposes of God over and against the will of the enemy. And Joshua's getting ready. And all of a sudden, and the word doesn't say what's going on, but I don't know, maybe Joshua's out there alone right now praying, but whatever. And in Joshua chapter 5, 13, he sees a man standing. Not just a little dude, hey guy, hey, where you at? What's happening? Hey James, man, great, good to see you. Not just anybody. David, hey. He sees a man. And in the hand of this man is a flaming sword. And Joshua wisely asks, Are you for us or against us? You with us or for them? And you would think the angel said, I'm for you. But he doesn't say that, does he? He says, neither. But as captain of the Lord of hosts, the commander, I have now come. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? Who is this captain? If we were to read the words that Moses heard as he approached the burning bush in chapter 3, verse 5 of Exodus, the voice from the bush is the voice of the Lord God himself, Yahweh, who says to Moses, take off your shoes from off your feet, for the ground upon which you stand is holy ground. Nothing of man's design stands before me. Stand before me totally dependent upon me and this man says to Joshua take off your shoes from off your feet because the ground that you're standing on is holy ground see this is Yahweh this is the commander this is the captain of the hosts of the Lord now let's go back to Luke 2 13 And remember what was said. At the announcement of Jesus' birth, what does it say? And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts. I do not believe that this is just a bunch of sweet little angels playing on harps with little angelic faces. I believe these angels are the angelic army of God. Welcoming the birth of their commander who is now on earth to do battle against that usurper, Satan, the God of this world. And he is on earth to do battle in order to undo Satan's grip 
over the will of his or God's people in order to free them. See, I think this is a military hoorah. Anybody who is in the military at all knows that often there's a cadence given when we march. Any of you remember those things? And there's a drill and there's a command. You remember, some of you know what we're talking about? Sound off. Remember all those things? There is a cadence. There is a, a, if you would, a singing forth. And this, I believe, is not only the joyful sound of God's army, but also... How do I say this? Finally, Satan, you're going to get yours. Why the heavenly host? Because you see, the commander has been born into the world to do battle with and defeat the usurper of God's rule. So that our wills could be freed from Satan's control. Second Timothy 2.26, the word says that we have been enslaved to do Satan's will. Now, you need to look at that. Because there's quite a bit of a discussion in the church from time to time about does man have free will? What we have is the freedom to choose. Right? The freedom to choose within categories. If we are not saved, we have freedom to choose within a category of damnation, of slavery to sin. There is absolutely no way that we have freedom to choose our way out of sin. That cannot happen. That's why God sent the commander. To do for us what we could never and would never do for ourselves. However, in Christ, the bondage of our will, 2 Timothy 2.26, you just go home and you got to get grapple with that. Do I have free will? We're talking about within God's purposes. Not free will to eat a hamburger or eat a salad. We're talking about for the purposes of God. And the Bible clearly says, our wills have been what? Messed with. Manipulated. It says our wills have been captured. To do the will of Satan. I think that's the case closed. And the commander has come to do away with that. For his people. Well when did this happen? Well succinctly it happened. In the garden of Eden. Remember in the garden of Eden. God created man and woman. To be in his image. To live their lives. Out of and for. The purposes of God. To be his living image. Upon the earth. So that when. The creation and the angelic host would see humanity. They would have a picture from the community of man that pictured the community of God. The Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit to image. But you remember in chapter 3, what does the word say? Now the serpent was more crafty than all the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he says to the woman, hath God said? And this is the first assault against the will of man. Because you see in chapter 2, verse 17, 16, 17, the Lord said, I'm going to give you everything in this garden. You have the tree of life. You have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But in verse 17, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat from that tree. Because in the day that you eat of it, you shall doesn't say die. It says what? Surely die. Surely die. And so in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, the last three words are the most terrible words, at least from the natural man is concerned, but the most beautiful words for us. And he ate. When Adam ate, sin came into the world, and Satan became what First Corinthians 4.4 4 says, the God of this world, the usurper of God's purposes. And at that moment, the free will that Adam had was locked down and chained and locked away under Satan's will. And so also for every human ever born upon the face of the earth except for one man. I remember what I'm going to say. Listen what I'm going to say. First of all, I don't know what's going on in your life. We care. But in one sense, we don't care. Because whatever is going on, God will not be defeated. Now, some of you need to write that down. Some of you need to write it down. And you need to write it in big red letters. God will not be defeated. Julio, may I repeat that? May I? God will not be defeated. James, may I repeat that? God will not be defeated. Let's say it together. God will not be defeated. And every time we have an opportunity to sin in whatever category, we are embracing a defeat of God's purpose. We are repudiating the Lord himself. You see, it is a big, big, big thing to God when we sin. I've said it before and I'll say it again. One sin by one man, one time, the collapse of the entire cosmos. And our wills fell with everything else. 
You see, this child, this commando, this captain, who is called the captain of our salvation in Hebrews 2.10. He's called the captain of our salvation in Hebrews 2.10. And that was just not a nice sounding word. The author of Hebrews is taking it right out of the text. Right out of the text. And this child was born to battle. The prince of peace born to battle? Does that sound like an oxymoron to you? Peace, battle. We want peace, peace, peace. Give us peace. And the foolishness of man doesn't understand that there is peace now on earth and peace will come. But it comes at the cost of the highest battle. Peace never comes except through violent warfare and struggle and battle. This child was born to battle. And this titanic battle for the will of man was waged in another garden. You remember in the first garden, a man was given the command of God, do my will. And when Satan came in with that temptation, what should Adam have said? Father, I will do your will rather than something for or about me. I will lay down my pleasure, my preference, my way, my whatever, in preference for that which you give me, if there is anything of contrariness here. The most titanic battle of all creation occurs when this commander himself walks into a garden to undo what the first Adam did in his capitulation to the will of man. The most titanic battle for the will of humanity was waged in the garden of Gethsemane. That's the battleground. That's the battleground. And I just will give you this little reference for yourself when I, I will read these, but I'll leave out a lot. You see, in the battle of Gethsemane, We've all heard of the battle of this, the battle of Bull Run. This is the battle of Gethsemane. Jesus was faced with a similar temptation that Adam was faced with. Whose will? Adam had such a little thing, eating a little fruit. But Jesus was faced with the most agonizing and momentous decision that a man could ever make. If I say yes, all the sin of all my people for all time will be poured upon my shoulders. 
and I will be nailed to a cross having been beaten half to death. And I will have to pay the full fury of the eternal wrath of a holy God against myself because of the sin that I carry to the cross. How many of us have this kind of choice before us when we're tempted? Anybody? It makes that which tempts me to be of no consequence. And yet we fall so easily and so willfully and too often in the natural so happily. This great titanic battle Just read chapters 14, 15, and 16, and Jesus is changing. He's sighing. He's breathing differently. This man who of impeccable composure is now changing in front of his own people. And Jesus came to Gethsemane. And as he prayed, he kept falling to the ground. This isn't a picture of Jesus kneeling next to a rock, putting his hands up in a light from heaven, and he serenely looks up. This is a battle! Could you hear me, Warren? It's a battle. There has never been nor there ever will be a battle like this battle. And it is the battle for man's will to be in cooperation and moral correspondence with God's will. And he kept falling to the ground and he prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, this Horrific and horrible payment that I have to make. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. That's that's the statement. Spirit empowered that we need to regularly be making. And being in a great agony, he prayed even more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. This is a battle. Finally, three hours of this. He gets up and he goes to his disciples and says, the battle's over. I've made the choice. I will do the will of my father. Arise and let us go forth 
for the betrayer is at hand. How many of us have ever experienced having to make very, very difficult decisions? Anybody had to make a difficult decision? Is it a wrestling match or not? Is it? Yes. But have you had this experience? Once you've made the decision, okay, okay, let's do it. Now, the doing may not be pleasant, but the battle to do it is over. The battle to do the will of God is in the garden. You see, the battle to free man's will for the glory of God was won by a man. And in the garden of Gethsemane, a man unswervingly obeyed God's will on our behalf and for us. He did what we never could do. Even in the face of the most horrific consequences. You see, in the first garden, Adam failed to obey God's will. But in the second garden, Adam's, God's second Adam bowed his will to the will of his heavenly father. Now he will go to the cross. The battle is over. Now he will go to the cross to pay for his decision. Amen? The battle is over. Now he will go to the cross to pay for his decision. The cross is not the battle. Gethsemane is the battle. The cross is where the payment is made for the decision that Jesus made to do the will of God. And you see at the cross, Jesus pays the full penalty of God's judgment against our sinful wills. This is what Romans 5.1 says. Having been justified by faith, we, we what? Have right now what? What do we have right now? Somebody remember it? Peace with God. Peace has come in. Peace has come in. As a result, everyone in this room who has trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, you've been saved, you've been justified. God now sees us. And declares us to be not guilty of sin. Because our sin was paid for. He hasn't looked, over, looked it over and pretended it's not there. It's been paid for. Every one of us have been justified who have trusted in Jesus. Therefore, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven. Thanks be to God. Who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory what? Victory over my will. That had been captured by Satan. I no longer have to practice 
purposeful sin. Can you say amen? I no longer have to practice purposeful sin. Now listen to the way I said it. I did not say I will never sin. Someone's going to hear it like that. I no longer have to practice purposeful sin. When I am tempted and I know it's a temptation to sin, I no longer have to give in to it. Why? Because I have in me, and if you're saved, you have in you the active, powerful, motivating will of Jesus Christ himself by the Spirit of God. Do you believe that? You see, now we have the will of Jesus in us in order to live the victory that Jesus won on our behalf in Gethsemane. So, this is God's will for us for 2018, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, that every battle for God's will that in any and every battle for God's will, Romans 8.37 is God's will for us. That we be more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is a battle. The Prince of Peace has come to wage war and he won it in Gethsemane. Demonstrating that from the time he went into the wilderness in chapter 4 of Luke all the way through and he won the battle the won the battle he paid for the penalty he paid the penalty he paid the penalty he was buried our sins have been forgiven god has raised him from the dead he has ascended into heaven he has been exalted and crowned and he has sent the holy spirit to bring to us the very presence and power of his own life Let's stand and let's listen to this announcement that proclaims the victory of Jesus and let us this morning leave with this same attitude. Hit it, brother. Do it again. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is, hit it. They're back there trying to hit it.